Welcome back to Faith with Hey. Firstly, apologies. Uh, we had a bit of a technical mishap last week, so we missed a week, and I do apologize. But what that does mean is that uh, I've been able to spend some time working out how to make this podcasting thing even better. Thank you to everyone who has very kindly donated on the GoFundMe site. I'm presently looking at all kinds of exciting tech and this is going to get even better. So stay tuned for the weeks ahead. Faith with Hate comes to you today with a wonderful guest. His name is Will Geddes. He is, according to this blurb I'm reading here, one of the world's leading security and counterterrorism specialists. Will Geddes is also a commentator and analyst for the international media, including CNN, NBC, Newsweek, BBC, Sky. I mean, mate, your face is all over the place. What exactly do you do? You know, Jamie, it's, it's, it's always a really difficult question to answer. Um, it's also a question that, depending on who's asking you, will depend on the kind of answer I'll actually give. Um, I would say the sort of the broadest banner would be security, but security can mean so many different things to different people. So fundamentally, I'd probably try and tie it up and consolidate it as threat management, which sounds awfully fancy, but fundamentally, it's about protecting people. And whether that be in a widest diversity of shapes and manifestations that it can present itself, whether it be online, face-to-face, uh, and in other capacities. And, I mean, you are, I'm, I'm going to embarrass you now, you are the closest thing in my life to James Bond. Um, admittedly, it's a pretty low bar, if you knew my friends. Um, <laughs> but you, you are, I mean, it's extraordinary work that you do. You travel all over the world, obviously not so much at the moment. But um, this, is, this podcast is called Faith with Haith. It's uh, looking at life through the lens of faith. Um, and I want to get onto your into your onto your book in a little while, but I just want to ask you: you you are not what most people would think of when they think of a person of faith. You you you're unashamed about that fact. What is it about faith that you find attractive? How did you how did you come to have faith in God? Well, I I think like for many people, Jamie, it was um, an interesting pathway. I started, uh, probably like most, being introduced to the church when I was at school. And it was more sort of hoisted and, you know, sort of forced upon me than it was necessarily something that I voluntarily wanted to do. And whether that be sort of school assemblies, school church, um, my father, he uh, was a very religious man. He would sort of drag me and my siblings to to church every Sunday. Uh, You know, we'd sing all the hymns, know them off by heart, um, do the usual Christmas, Easter, and major religious holiday sort of festivities. But it really sort of came to me more in later life. And I think especially with where my life ended up and moving into the world that I actually inhabit now, sort of within the security world, if you call it. And it's something where I think it provides you with uh, a compass, um, a moral compass, which I think for some of us at some stage or another uh, will find it spins. And we don't really know which path to go down and what choices to make. And we set our parameters of what we believe are good moral values, perhaps by the people that we keep company with. 
And sometimes if you're, particularly in the world that I inhabit, um, mixing with people that have a very different and perhaps distorted perspective on life. Um, for me, faith is that thing that brings me home. It harnesses me down and hopefully, hopefully, sort of draws me back to a good path of being good with other people. Yeah, fascinating. You, you were telling me last week, I hadn't realised this, but you were growing up, you, you had quite a lot to do with the London Dungeon. Does that have any bearing on why you're a security expert now? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not so, so much sure whether that, that actually had any... Um, Growing, but yeah, indeed, you know, I did have a connection to that in so much as it was my mother that actually founded it and uh, and started. Yeah. So I was about seven years old at the time, and the story, as I'm I'm led to believe, um, I was too young to really remember this. Was myself and my siblings uh, going with her to the bloody tower at the Tower of London, and turning around and saying, "This isn't very bloody," and uh, <laughs> the idea in my mother's head to go, "Well, why didn't?" we do a, an exhibition about medieval torture. So, you know, my childhood was kind of a little bit odd in terms of, you know, dotted around the house on regular occasions were books about medieval torture and witchcraft and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, it may have had some sort of influence as to where I ended up today, Jamie. I don't know. But, yeah, it was certainly an interesting childhood. That's so funny. I mean, you, you, you said we didn't talk about it very long and you said you were involved in it growing up. I didn't realize your mum actually started it. That's extraordinary. Yeah, she, uh, she you know, I, I had an interesting childhood. I, I don't really talk about my childhood much, but I think it's quite parallel with many other people in my industry who protect other people. Um, it, was a, it was a difficult childhood. Uh, my father was very authoritarian. My mother was an alcoholic. Uh, and as a result, uh, as a child living up in that environment, it was tough. And certainly, you know, there's an inherent value, I think, in a lot of people that are in my industry, in the security industry and protection industry, that we feel that sort of underlying feeling of wanting to protect other people. Um, you know, I'm not going to go into great details and be far too boring for the poor listeners, but certainly I think there are direct parallels with the values of wanting to protect people against bullies, um, threats of various types, and also the church. Because the church fundamentally is a sanctuary for people, and it's a sanctuary for people, for their thoughts, their values, uh, for kindred spirits, and, and a belief system and a belief structure in things which are inherently good. It's very interesting. You, you, you're in an industry that's about strength. It's about, um, it's about protection. It's about secrets, I suppose. One of the things I'm learning is, and, and I'm learning this, with friends like you is that there is there is a power in vulnerability there is a great strength in it in in talking to friends and and being raw and being honest yeah and i i agree with you jamie i think it's something which uh, i'm really pleased that society is becoming far more accepting of that to show and to display and um, talk about one's own vulnerabilities isn't necessarily a weakness. And this is something which certainly for colleagues of mine who are in the military, and some of which, you know, were in the very, very sharpest ends of it, you know, in special forces. Uh, and I had counted a lot of very good friends uh, who spent extensive time in those, those areas, uh, who 
will sit down with you who are incredibly troubled, who are very vulnerable. And we talk about PTSD in a very broad sense, but PTSD is not just purely and solely uh, aligned to the military and those that are veterans of combat. Uh, it can apply to people from abused childhoods, it can uh, from abused relationships, from all sorts of things. And I'm really pleased that society is more accepting of it and that for you to display it, and I think there's still some ways to go, that it's not this old school, you know, I grew up in the 70s, Jamie, where it was, you know, man up, don't talk about these things. You're a weak person if you if you don't. From time to time, and yeah, you don't probably stand on the, the rooftops and scream about it, but you share with your friends and the people that you trust and the people that you hope care about you and, and tell them when you're feeling a bit weak. And I think we all do in this pandemic and this lockdown, especially, you know, it's been an interesting exercise. I've spoken to many, many people um, and said, how's your lockdown be? And people go, yeah, it's kind of okay. But I've kind of voluntarily gone, I think everybody, and I've said to people, I think everybody's had their ups and downs. You know, we've had good moments and we've had really low moments. And I certainly did. I can say that. And I think ultimately when you say that, people can feel that they can open up a little bit more and they go, yeah, actually, I did have a pretty tough time. But it's it's realizing that there are other people out there who are there to help you. And I think people shouldn't be hesitant about necessarily leaning to the church. I think the church and certainly, you know, with reverence like yourself, Jamie, who I think are really revelationary. You were, you were such a huge influence to me coming back to the church, Jamie. I can't tell you. And this is why, you know, I value you as a, an important friend, man, influence in my life. Um, and I think people need to find that there, there are people out there that can help them. Thank you, ma'am. I'm a bit choked up. Um, anyway, <coughs> moving on. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the the. Uh, I see you as a as a man of uh, wisdom, um, and that reflects very much in the book that you wrote a couple of years ago now, Parent Alert: How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about this today is, I mean obviously to unashamedly, un unashamedly plug it, um, uh, available at all good bookstop shops and some terrible ones and online. Um, Will Geddes, Parent Alert, How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online. The, the Bible talks a lot about wisdom and this book is packed full of wisdom. If you could see my copy now, listeners, you'd see it's, I've got about 30 little uh, tabby tags on it um, of, cause I, I worry about my kids. I do, you know, I've got three teenage daughters. I've got, well, one's the, the youngest one's nearly teenage I've got, and, and a son. And I see them on their phones all the time. And I won't be alone in that. I know that any parents listening to this and you feel like I, I just, I can't break into that. I don't know how to, as the, as the title suggests, I don't know how to keep them safe online. Um, what made you want to write this book in the first place? Well, it's interesting because I wasn't actually the person that, that started or initiated the idea. In fact, I was approached by the publishers who said to me, Will, we want to write this book and it's going to be for parents to help them guide their kids through you know, the, the troubles and the dangers and the risks of, of inhabiting this new on-life and digital world. And the first thing I said was, but there's got to be a dozen or so books like this out there already. And surprisingly, there weren't. And 
I was really quite astounded by that. And they said, well, look, we'd like to put this together. And I said, well, look, the first thing I really need to be clear with you on is I would not term myself as a cybersecurity expert. Um, There are amazing guys that I know who are writing code and hacking things on a daily basis and ex-government agencies um, who would be probably far better placed than me. And they said, no, 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 we want you to write it because we don't want it in tech speak. And we know that your job often is to translate what the technical guys will say and put it into plain English for people that don't have that technical understanding. And I said, okay, I get that. Um, Who are we going to write it for? What sort of age groups are we going to be considering? And they said, well, we'd like to ideally cover from seven to 17. At which point I went, you've got to be kidding. Um, That is such a broad, broad spectrum of people and and, and children. I'm not sure we can do that. And they said, well, we really, really do want to cover this spectrum, you know, seven to 17 years old. And I said, well, look, the best I think we can do is to divide the book almost in half. And we do from seven to 13, say, as best practice, the sort of things that one needs to adopt as good practice when you're online uh, from an early age. But then from 13 to 17, it's going to be crisis management because their skill sets are going to far exceed their parents' capabilities. And, you know, we see this today. I mean, what children can do online at the age of 14, 15, 16 is quite astounding. I mean, you look at some of the most recent high-profile hackings that went on. Um, a lot of these are very, very young kids in many ways. You know, they are under 18 years old. So the idea was to try and put this book together and, and to format it in a way that not only could the parent read it and understand a little bit about what they can advise their kid to do, but also how to set up their devices securely, um, how to ensure that they don't fall into those hazards, which some parents will, where they're spying on their kids. And one of the things I, I, I don't condone is spying on your children. Be, uh, and because if the child doesn't know that you're involved, then they find out that you're spying on them, you're going to lose all their trust and they're going to end up going in deeper down that rabbit hole, if you like. Um, and it's, it was a really fun experience to do. And there's some pretty controversial subjects in there, which you know we did debate about whether we should put them in or not. But it was almost turning that rock over and saying, there are things that go on online that we don't really want to think about, but we do need to address because they are. So uh, let, let's get into some of these. But, but before we do, I mean, I, what I love is that the step-off point of the book is is relationship it's trust with your kids as you say um and you've got, you've got to be really careful with that it's trust it's and uh, you, you say talking teaching teamwork and trust can you speak a little bit about that help help me with <laughs> with my kids yeah <laughs> be delighted jane um the, the the trust thing is really key uh, and because there are things that you have to accept children will see online, whether it be by their own search or whether it be by their friends showing them stuff. And it's stuff that as a parent, you will fold up in, into yourself and go, I, I really would not want them to see it. And they're going to see it at a far earlier age than you would ever want them to. I mean, you and I, Jamie, we grew up, you know, pre-digital times. So you know, if one wanted to look at pornography, you had to go into the newsagents and embarrassingly try and take it off the top shelf if you could reach that height. Um, these days, it's literally a click away. You don't have to pay for it. It's just a simple search. Parental controls for many kids are purely a challenge. 
and an obstacle to overcome. So it's almost accepting that they will look at this material, but this is where the trust then has to uh, progress to you being able to discuss with the child and say, look, I need to trust you that you are going to be looking at stuff um, that you don't want to look at, but you need to understand that if you look at it, that could have an impact on you. I mean, there's an old saying in our industry, um, which is, you know, what is seen can never be unseen. And I can't think of a, a, a truer phrase to describe some of the stuff that potentially people can see online. But there are ways of being able to manage it um, in, in a safe way that the child can accept and understand and comprehend that actually looking at that kind of material could give them nightmares, uh, could traumatize them, could really upset them, and that they understand that you're doing it in their best interest. And this is where this trust is really key. But the teamwork and the talking, absolutely critical as well. I mean, the, the, the whole book is full of wisdom, um, but there are also some, there are some real hooks um, to, to hang things on. I was just, I was just reflecting on, because uh, I, like anyone, uh, with each of my, actually my oldest, I don't think I've ever done, but the uh, taking the phone away if, uh, if they've done something wrong or <laughs> using that as punishment. Um, uh, it's better than the London dungeon, but it's, uh, it, you wouldn't think so by the reaction. But um, I love this. In less severe circumstances, an alternative to confiscating the phone is to delete apps from a child's phone one by one. So if, if there's some uh, unruly behavior on Snapchat, then you simply just delete Snapchat off their phone. I think the key thing is that they are children, aren't they? And the, you've bought the phone, and even though there is that trust and you don't want to, to do anything to damage that trust, there is still, you are responsible as an adult for what, is, what they are seeing and uh, how they're communicating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I get into this row with some parents. A lot of children will get their first phone at about, on average, about 10 years old. And the one thing that I get into trouble with other parents on is I, I turn around and say, as far as I'm concerned, until the child actually buys and pays for the service of that phone, it's not their phone. It's your phone and you're giving it to them on loan. So in, in the same regard, you know, it's communicating to the child and saying, I'm giving you the privilege of being able to use this phone. And until you're paying for it yourself, I set the guidelines. But one of the, the, one of the sneaky things about this deleting of apps, uh, and there's a little bit more to it than just denying them that access, because the one thing that I would certainly say that you have to be cautious of is children may very well have another phone that you're not even aware of. Um, so if you take their phone away, that might not be the end of their world. But if you delete the app from one of their phones, that means they have to juggle between their phones potentially to get to the particular apps that they want to at that particular time, which increases the chances of compromise and that other phone getting discovered by you. But children can be very, very sneaky about, for example, Instagram. There's this commonly recognized term now called Finsta or fake Insta. So they'll have maybe one Instagram account which you know of, and they may have two or three other accounts that you don't know of, you know, which are the slightly more raunchy ones or the slightly more sort of cheeky ones that they're using. And the same can apply to TikTok. The same can apply to, to any kind of social media platform. So as a parent, you've just got to be very, very cautious of that. But 
in terms of looking, if in the book I give you a couple of sort of um, key ideas of how to find out whether they've got a fake Instagram account or another social media account. But children will try and hide this stuff away, which is why, you know, again, I circle back, Jamie, to the, uh, the talking show. I mean, it reminds me, I had a talk, I gave a talk, and I do, uh, you know, as many as I can to schools. And I had one with a school where the kids were probably between, I'd say, 7 and 12, which is younger than you are really authorized to have an Instagram account. And I, I sort of cheered them up and got them all excited talking about sort of online safety and bits and bobs. And I think they'd forgotten that the, the teachers were actually sat at the back of the room. And I spoke to these kids. It was probably about 30 or 40 of them in the room. And I said, okay, how many of you have got an Instagram account? And every single arm shot into the sky. And I went, you all know that you're not really allowed to have one. You're beneath the age of being able to have an Instagram account. And they all giggled. Then I went, how many of you have got more than one Instagram account that your parents don't know about? And every single arm shot up again, Jamie. And then I said, how many of you know the PIN number to your parents' mobile phones? And they all shot their hands up. I mean, kids do not underestimate them. They're incredibly smart and a lot smarter than perhaps I was at that age, that's for sure. You, uh, you make a very good point that um, you've got to set a good example. And I'm, I'm, I'm as bad as anyone. My, my phone is always near me. Um, I look at it first thing in the morning. I look at it last thing at night. I know I shouldn't, but it's, uh, it's a drug, isn't it? And, um, and it's very easy to sort of get your kids to adhere to rules and regs that you don't even adhere to yourself. No, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I would ask the listeners to think about, let's say they wake up in the middle of the night, um, you know, to get a glass of water, to go to the bathroom, whatever it might be. How many of you pick up your phone and look at it, check it for messages? And maybe take it with you and then you find yourself probably spending more time awake before you go back to bed because, I don't know, something happened uh, in a message or you looked at your social media feed. Um, there is this great documentary at the moment. Um, some of the, the listeners probably have already seen, but if you haven't, I do compel you to watch it. It's called The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which is a fascinating insight to some of the pioneers in social media and why they created the like button and the sort of dopamine issue, which I talk about in the book. And that's why it's so important. Kids should not have their phones in their rooms when they go to bed because they'll be up all night and that will have a domino effect in their work, um, their concentration when they go to school, um, all sorts of things, their social interaction. You know, these things need to be taken away. And we as adults, need to kind of set that example. You're absolutely right, Jamie. You know, and one of the other things that I think, uh, and I talk about in the book, is about taking, you know, technical breaks or digital rests, if you want to call it. Um, and that is, you know, to put all your devices down when you're actually having meals, family meals. So you're actually having conversations rather than everyone checking their messages or the phone's going ping, 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 ping. Um, and, you know, one of the tricks that I've done with my friends, and these are all adults, or they pretend to be, um, will be when we go out for dinner. You know, the agreement is we all put our phones into the middle of the table. The first person to pick up their phone is going to pay the bill. <laughs> um, that's, I think that's, 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 re- actually, we went out for dinner the other night. I'm sure I looked at my phone and you didn't yeah, let me pay the bill. The bill. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I switched off. I had it, I had it just 20 minutes ago when we started this conversation because for, for this, for, we're on a Zoom um, for this podcast. 
And to sort of avoid pings and pongs and dings and dongs, I, I switched off my phone and something inside me went a little bit funny. It is, it's this disconnect. And, and the, the, the weird thing is, is that we are so connected to it. I mean, another, another terrible example, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm awful myself, Jamie, I'll readily admit, you know, I have an Apple Watch. And I couldn't. Yeah, I, I I just can't get one of them. <laughs> Sorry, I, I really can't. You know, I have some beautiful, beautiful watches, and a friend of mine equally has some beautiful watches. You know, the one thing that we guys can collect is jewelry. I think is watches. And I said to him, and he's got an Apple Watch. And I said, Do you ever wear any of your lovely watches? And he said, I don't, because I'm chained to my Apple Watch because it alerts me when I've got messages or calls or whatever. And Mate, I just have flown the whole James Bond thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> just, um, <laughs> I went for one of my watches to come yeah, back. See I'm going to put this Apple Watch away. I'm going to put it away, Jamie, because you know it's just another, another absolute sort of tie to my my technology, which you know I, I, I refuse to have an Alexa, for example, at home. Uh, I, I you know I do believe the Internet of Things and smart homes is becoming more and more prevalent, and I know it makes our lives easier, but. There are all sorts of potential risks to these things as well, not just in terms of a security risk, but I think in a in a medical in, in a mental dependency risk as well. Are, are there? It's interesting. You say um, smart speakers. Are they listening to us the whole time? There's this huge debate about this, um, and I constantly get people asking me things about. You know what? I was talking about holidays in Marrakesh with a friend of mine the other day, and then I went on my social media feed, and up pops ads for Mar- hotels in Marrakesh or holidays in Marrakesh. There is, there has been issues of some devices listening. Um, some of the big name devices, obviously the Alexas, um, the Series, and the like, they're there they have too much of a reputation to potentially lose if they are surreptitiously listening to us without our permissions. Um, a lot of that kind of Marrakesh analogy is drawn more from the algorithms out there deciding what we may want to see. And sometimes it's a bit of a fly fishing exercise by them, but each time we deny it, and again, the Social Dilemma documentary on Netflix talks an awful lot about this and how it will throw ideas at you. And if you don't look at it, or you're not on the page, or you delete it, then it goes, right, that's not what Jamie wants to look at, so let's throw in some other stuff. And then you go on it. And a lot of the social media platforms will actually see how long you actually even look at that page for, and then build an agro, uh, you know, build some analysis on you as to your degrees or levels of interest. It's really kind of spooky oh dear oh dear I'm, I'm determined not to get worried because of this conversation and i don't want any listener to get worried there are things that we can do i mean t- t- let's 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 move on to um cyber cyber bullying trolling how can i protect my kids from that well the first thing is uh and i don't think one can resort to what we originally used to say, which was, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never help hurt me. The problem is, is that there is for kids less of an, and even for adults as well, there, there are fewer places to hide. And whereas in maybe our childhoods, Jamie, you know, you could leave school, you could go home to the sanctuary of your, you know, your family and escape from any taunting or bullying that you might have experienced at school from the, the horrible kids there. These days, kids don't have that opportunity. You know, they'll go home and their digital device, their social media platform, the bullying can continue relentlessly. 
The one thing that I would always say is, and this is something that I've stood fast by for many, many years, and this is dealing with death threats, dealing with stalkers, dealing with some really serious threat. It has been that when you receive these communications, just do not respond. The troll is always looking for the oxygen of response. Uh, if you go back with whatever smart or clever response or retort, that isn't necessarily going to have any impact whatsoever on them. What they want to see is a reaction out of you. They want to see how you've responded to it and whether they up the ante or they take it in a different direction. And the first thing I'd always say is just do not respond. It's a little bit like um, the old saying which someone said to me many, many years ago, which I've never forgotten, which is never presume why someone hasn't called you back. So if you drop a, a call to a partner, um, maybe it's business, it could be a relationship, it could be someone you're about to date or are dating, and you send them this lovely message and they don't respond, you can be sending yourself into a complete spin, speculating why they haven't responded. And then inevitably, more often than not, they'll come back and go, oh, I'm so sorry, my phone was broken, or I was in a meeting and I couldn't respond right then, or I didn't have any signal. But there are a million different reasons other than the one that you've speculated has been the reason. Uh, and the same should apply to trolls. They can carry on sending their toxic messages. But as long as you don't respond, they have nothing to hook onto. And so as a child, really key to not respond. That's number one. Number two, don't deal with it alone. Uh, it's, this is again comes back to these three T's, Jamie, that we talk about, you know, the trust, the teamwork and the talking. And part of that talking and teamwork is that the child can come to you, can talk to you about it. And you as a parent can deal with it. I actually had a situation during lockdown where a guy that I know, he goes to the same club as me, same gym as me, uh, got in touch and said that his daughter had been relentlessly bullied online by these uh, horrible school friends. And I gave her loads of advice and he wanted to sort of get the lawyers involved and get him, you know, legal letters sent to the parents and everything else. And I said, don't, just, just let it go. Don't respond. Don't react. Just let the whole thing die out in its natural way. And it did. And he called me back um, a few weeks later and said, Will, thank you so much. She's so happy. They've stopped. It's all ended. And because the thing is, is that, you know, more often than not, these people, I mean, Twitter, for example, you know, I've got a Twitter account. I don't engage a great deal on it, but it's becoming more and more toxic. And it's almost this kind of punch bag environment for people just to send horrendous messages to each other. I've been trolled a few times on that and I just won't react and respond because they're looking for it. And there could be a million reasons, Jamie, why people are being so horrid on Twitter. And it says probably more about the pain that's going on in their life than it does necessarily about how they feel about you. Let's get really into it. Let's get onto the, the really scary stuff. Um, grooming. How do you know, um, what are the indications that someone you're chatting with or you know, having comes with on, on social media or Snapchat, whatever it is, how do you know that they are who they say they are? You don't. You simply don't. Um, and this is something that I do encourage parents to do. Uh, the parent needs to understand and engage with their child on not just who their physical friends are, but who their online friends are. Um, if, for example, your child was to say, you know what, I'm going off to the park or to the woods or 
going out shopping with Janet, Jane and John, you as a parent would go, who is Janet, Jane and John? Who are their parents? Where did you meet them? Are they school friends? You'd ask all those questions, wouldn't you? So when someone says, oh, I'm going to go on to Fortnite and I'm going to team up with Janet, Jane and John, or I'm going to go and do this, or I've been chatting with Janet, Jane and John all evening, you know, on Snapchat or any one of the other sort of online platforms, you should be finding out a little bit more about them. How did you meet them? Where have you met them? You know, there are some horrific statistics, Jamie, uh, where eight out of 10 girls under the age of 15 will meet someone offline and don't tend to tell their parents about it. Wow. It's horrific. And this is why it's so important. And I hate to just shock people into to, to action, but we can't just think, you know what, because we're sat in the comfort of our own home, we've got the laptop here or they've got their phone, that they're safe. There are horrific predators out there, uh, some of which that I've, I've come up against and I've dealt with investigations on. Um, who are literally out there looking for potential victims. And children obviously don't have the same degree of instinct and wherewithal that we as adults will have developed and, and, and established over years, where we'll go, hang on, there's something a bit fishy about this, there's something unusual. And they'll use all sorts of different means and techniques. Zoom or doing video calls with strangers, again, is something you've got to be very cautious of and the kids have got to be cautious of. I would generally be suggesting to parents that they, they talk to them about who they should and who they shouldn't actually do video calls with. Um, there was a horrendous upspike. I think it was like 167% uh, in sexting cases over lockdown of children under the age of 15. You know, the, 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 this online world is as full, as full of predators as the offline world. And, you know, parents need, again, to be finding out who they're talking to and what they're talking about. What, what do I do in terms of... Um, do, do you think for girls it's more about, say, Insta? Coming back, I suppose, coming back to uh, connecting with people online, but also the sort of uh, the pressures and the, uh, the, the bullying and everything. Is it fair to say that girls are bullied more on um, social media and boys on gaming? Yeah, I'd say that's probably about right. I mean, although there's almost an equal number of girls actually in gaming now than, than there are boys. But I think for girls, there's a, an awful lot of pressure. There's this uh, really quite depressing sexualization that's happening on Instagram where you know, you, you go on Instagram and you see that, you know, girls have to be kind of really sexy or project this sort of sexiness. And it's, it's, it's kind of depressing, to be honest, whenever I see it. Um, and I think the bullying aspect is also drawn from that. And there's this peer pressure amongst girls um, that they have to one-up on each other in terms of, you know, you've got to put a more riskier picture up or they're encouraged to. And it's, well, we've all done it, so you have to do it too. Which is again where, you know, this 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 measure of balance needs to to prevail as a parent being able to sit down with them and have a grown-up conversation. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book, as you know, Jamie, is, you know, when things go horribly wrong. And I mean, I had this case with a, um, a friend of mine. She called me up. And I know this is slightly different to the bullying, but it's about this communication aspect, which just I keep trying to repeat throughout the book, where her son, who I knew, um, lovely boy, 17 years old, um, 
great achiever at school, sportsman, fit, healthy, lovely, personable, lovely girlfriend, great kid. Um, and she said, Will, he's sort of gone in himself. He's, he's gone incredibly quiet. We haven't heard anything from him in terms of, you know, he's, he's just not interacting with the family. Um, he's not said anything. We've inquired a little bit, but he's not telling us anything. Um, can maybe you have a bit of a chat with him? And I said, yeah, of course, I'll have a chat with him. And what had transpired was he'd been online, thought he'd been talking to a girl, and the girl had asked him to send a D-pick, and I'm sure the listeners can figure out what that is, um, and then subsequently was compromised into finding it wasn't a girl, it was an organised crime group, who then turned around and said, unless you send us £100, we're going to post this all over your social media. We're going to send it to your friends. We're going to send it to your school. We're going to send it to, you know, everybody that you know. This poor boy was absolutely traumatized by it. Sent £100 by PayPal to this account. The next thing happened, like every extortionist, uh, they turned around and said, well, we need another £100. You know, my golden rule with extortionists, whether it's on uh, any kind of blackmail for adults, kids, whatever, is never pay. Uh, if you pay, they're only going to come back for more. So he didn't have another £100 as it happened. So he had to break cover and say what had happened. Now, I dealt with the situation and we got it resolved. But a bit like the trolling and a bit like the cyberbullying, they went off and just looked for another target. He was terrified for a few weeks thinking, oh, my God, this picture's going to end up online. But no, these organized crime groups, they're hitting thousands of kids on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But it was about the talking. And one thing that I said to him was, look, talk to the parent. But equally with the parent, I said, do not fly off on it. You know, if they come to you and say, mom, dad, I've gone horribly wrong. I've done something really daft and stupid, and it's put me at a super, you know, huge compromise. Really important that you don't go and uh, turn into a nuclear sort of uh, uh, mushroom cloud. You know, deal with it and say, let's work together. Again, this teamwork aspect, let's get it resolved. Then, yes, once it's resolved, maybe turn around and say, you know what, that was really daft. And I do need to do something to, to demonstrate that that was a bad call on your part and I'm going to confiscate your phone for a week or a month or whatever it might be, or you're grounded, whatever you decide it might be. But so important that as a parent, you don't take that initial sort of uh, protective emotional re reaction and response of sort of blowing up and screaming and going, oh my God, how stupid were you? try and keep suppress that until you get the problem resolved because then the child will feel more confident to be able to talk to you again if it happens again which you probably will gosh what can you trust who can you trust i i've got an instagram uh i don't have uh i'm, I'm not exactly a, a, an influencer let's put it that way but i every now and again pretty much every other day uh, uh someone follows me and then i look at it and they're either odd pictures or yeah, I mean, is that is that a bot? Yeah, more than likely. So, so one of the things that I do is I have a private Instagram account, and I don't mind people following me, but I want to see who they are if they do want to follow me. So, if someone requests a follow with me, and this is what I could suggest that a lot of parents do with their kids, is the child's account is private. It doesn't mean that they're not going to get their thousands of followers that they necessarily want. But it allows you to verify at the door, if you like, the physical door, who's actually coming through that door. And if the person requesting to follow me has a private account, 
I request to follow them first. Now, if they don't allow me into their account for me to verify that they've not just trawled a bunch of pictures off Google Images and stuck them up, um, then I can let them back in. I can unfollow them if need be, and they can continue to follow me, but at least I've seen exactly who it is who's requesting to follow me. Interesting. I've, I think I, I, I've, I've wised up now, and um, I, just, I just delete them almost immediately. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. Mate, this is just, this is gold dust. I know that people will be leaning into this and, uh, to hear, but it's all in the book, Parent Alert, How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online by security expert Will Geddes. Can I just ask uh, one more question uh, sure. before we finish about um, location and how you can, um, because we're, we're all so trusting. We shove this stuff out there. We take a picture of ourselves and this is me in Hyde Park and uh, this is where I go every day. And, uh, you know, it's one thing for adults. It's another thing with kids, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a number of different things. I, I talk about, as you say in the book, about doing video conferencing or doing video calls and about being very cautious about what is in the background. We can very rarely... Um, consider what might be behind us is an indicator of where we live, where we work, who our friends are. It's a bit like, you know, if you took a photograph of your car, you're not going to want to show your registration number on it, uh, even if you're trying to sell it, for example, uh, online. So really important that you're not putting stuff in the background or have stuff in the background that you weren't aware of. So have a look. Why, why, sorry, I'm, I'm being thick. Why would I not want my car reg on an auto trader? Advert. For the reason being that there are ways and means to be able to determine your exact address and your location from your vehicle registration details. Um, it's not easily done. It's not in the public domain, but maybe you want to screen who people are before they know exactly where your home address is. Uh, I so they want to come and steal it, I got you. Sorry, I interrupted you, Carrie. No, 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 not at all. I mean, so, you know, a good example would be, I mean, for example, on the sort of the identifiers behind you. So I would rarely want to do something which shows a landmark, which is um, synonymous to where I live at home. Uh, and then post, yeah, another quiet Sunday on a rainy Sunday at home. And, oh, look, there's this landmark which indicates where I live. But for children, for example, they may have a picture on the wall of, you know, Little Mix or someone that they like, you know, Harry Styles. And the person that they're talking to online, if they don't know this person, it's not a close personal friend, could be saying, oh, you know what? I love Little Mix. Do you like Little Mix? And they may go, forgetting entirely that they've got a picture of Little Mix behind them, go, oh, yeah, they're my favorite band in the world. And it's this social engineering that if, for example, uh, a predator might potentially utilize to kind of create that common ground between them and their potential victim. So, you know, it's, it's about being cautious of what you're showing. There's also the geotagging aspect. You know, one of the things I don't do is I don't, for example, I'm on an iPhone. I think you are as well, Jay. Mm. I don't sync my photos to my iCloud. Uh, the reason being is I don't, A, want everything to go straight across all my single little devices, but also I want to control it because I may want to delete a whole bunch of stuff. There is location stuff in your settings on your phone. And I don't think people probably spend enough time looking at what actually is in the settings of their phones. I know that the recent update, the iOS 14, uh, Android, there are all sorts of risks, and I don't think we probably have time to go into, but there are all sorts of issues with, with Android that I could go on about. But iPhone's generally pretty secure. It's fairly safe. And iOS 14, 
has started asking actually every time you open up even some of your existing apps whether it wants to you wants to send notifications it wants to give your location access to photographs you may have noticed that so again it apple's doing its best to try and control that kind of propagation of your information across various different devices but also to some of the app developers as well um, but yeah uh, there there is thing in location settings within your general settings on your phone, which I would suggest people look at, about how much is it giving of your position. And there's uh, favorite locations, which is actually within that sub-menu sub of location settings, which will actually even show the most commonly visited locations that you go to. And you might be terrified to see that. We've come to the end of our time together, sadly. Um, but thank you for today. Thank you so much for uh, just sharing really fantastic wisdom uh, insights on all of this. And I, and I think you'd be the first to say, look, parents, don't get worried about this, but just, uh, just get real. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just accepting that you should treat your child's online life as seriously as you treat their real world life. Um, it's something that they're inhabiting more and more these days. They may even spend more time there than they do with their real friends. And that's why it's so important. But don't be terrified about it. Um, you will, you know, they will get to that level of expertise, which will far surpass yours. Um, so those three underlying aspects of trust, teamwork, and talking, try and remember those three, try and implement all three. Uh, and you're putting yourself in a better space. And if it all goes really terribly wrong, then give Will a call. He has a certain set of skills. <laughs> Will get his thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Reverend Haith, it's always a pleasure, sir. And I'm very honoured to have been asked to contribute to this series. Um, thank you so much, Jamie. You've been listening to Faith with Haith. If you've enjoyed uh, today's episode, then tune in and listen to some others and subscribe, please. And would you rate, would you review? And please share today's episode with someone that you know needs to hear this. See you, see you next time. Much love.